0: Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, based on multiple requests from our listeners, my friend, fellow entrepreneur and co-founder of ExitWise, Brian Dukes, is going to interview me to help our listeners learn a little bit more about my background and how we came to start ExitWise. We'll take you through the four companies I've started and sold while sharing a few memorable stories about my co founders, investors, customers, and acquirers that have made my professional journey worth the risk, the sacrifices, and the emotional roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. This is part two of a two part podcast.
1: If you haven't listened to part one, we encourage you to do that first. So, Spirit Shop gets closed down. Mm-hmm. What do you do next? You know,
0: I licked the wounds and there was a business plan contest. It was called the TechCrunch 50. Sure. And out in Silicon Valley that I'd heard of. And I think it started out as the TechCrunch 40. And then that year it became the TechCrunch 50. So, you know, gaining some popularity. And I think today they call it TechCrunch Disrupt. And so I took a business plan that I wrote in one of our classes and just said, all right, let me, I'll send this over. And, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors. Hey, I got this business here. And I got this call. I wish I could remember who from, but it was somebody that it was the name I definitely recognized. I was like, whoa! I can't believe I'm on the phone with this person, and she says to me, you know, you you're one of the TechCrunch 50, and I was like, oh. Awesome. So, what does that mean? And she's like, "Well, you're going to present your product on stage in front of a lot of people out here in Silicon Valley. Are you ready for that?" And I was like, "Oh, I, how much what? time
1: do I have?" Yeah. Like, and what, you know, <laughs> when is
0: this? And uh, I said, "So, I have to admit that the product doesn't actually exist. I would love to build that product." And she's like, "Okay. So, we actually have to launch products on our stage. And since you don't have a path to launching this product," you can come out, but you're part of basically the mosh pit of other entrepreneurs just hoping that they can have a chance at the last spot. So they assign 49 names and then they leave one for the hundreds of startups that are there trying to win that last spot. So um, I was like, well, sure, if they thought it was good enough to put me in, I guess I'm going to win this, right? So I get there and I really have no idea what I'm getting into, but I've got my little poster board (laughs) and, uh, I show up and wow, right. It is amazing. All of the businesses lined up, everybody vying for that spot. And you have two days, I think it was two days to pitch as many people as you could that are just walking by. So I got to the point where I was like tackling people to listen to me and each person had a poker chip. And if you could win that person's poker chip, your jar would fill up and whoever had the most poker chips at the end would win. And so, again, I had to call my brother. I'm like, this guy does not lose. So I call him in, and he helps pitch as I, you know, tackle and grab poker chips from people. <laughs> and then, you know, after bruises, he would take the tackling mode, and I would pitch. And after two days, we won. We won by a huge landslide. And I can tell you why. is like all the other products, they would wait. They would wait right. for people to come and ask them, tell me about your business. And we were like, go up to these people we're going to tell you about our business and you're going to give us our, your chip, right? It was just a matter of we can't lose. And sure enough, we win. I get that last spot up on stage. And I don't know if I'm the last one to pitch, but it's, you know, near the end of the day. And you still, it's it's an environment that I have, I have no idea what I'm stepping into. And I step on that stage and next to me are now judges and all the lights are right in your face. And Jason Calcanis is emceeing the event and he's looking at me saying, Go. Don't screw up. I don't know where the microphone <laughs> is. I don't know anything. And the guys sitting next to me, who are my judges, are Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, uh, Sean Parker, founder <laughs> of Plaxo, Napster, and the president of Facebook at one point, Dick Costolo, Michigan grad, go blue, right? Go blue. But president of Twitter. And I'm in this Disney world of entrepreneurship with the biggest names in the world. It was incredible. And so I have no idea what I said. I don't know if anyone (laughs) clapped or laughed or what. I know Sean Parker said I had the worst name for a company at the time. And my justification was, well, it was free and I don't have any money. (laughs) So anyway, when you get up on a stage like that and someone else has said, you're a top 50 startup In Silicon Valley, everybody at that point wanted, when I say everybody, venture. Venture capitalists wanted to know more. So it really allowed me to go up and down Sand Hill Road, meet with venture capitalists, pitch an idea, really. And, you know, these guys are seeing incredible business ideas, businesses grow. It felt like they really have the keys to the kingdom. You know, every meeting you're walking into, they've probably heard that pitch from somebody way smarter 10 other times. And so I really took the approach of, can you take your investor hat off and put your advisor hat on, right? I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to adjust. And one guy, uh, Rich Wong at Excel Partners, you know, we got up on a whiteboard and he's like, yeah, you gotta change that name. And we came up with the name CrowdZone and I was able to get the URL. And he said, we need to give this a shot. And actually I ended up having a different partner from the firm supported, it It was uh, Peter Wagner at Excel. And one of their EIRs, so Entrepreneur in Residence at Excel, to join me. And so it was 500 grand, EIR, go out and build this idea, right, of CrowdZone. Yeah, just really, really exciting blur of a time. So when you say, what did I do next? It was almost like life entrepreneurship just took over and mm-hmm. I was along for
1: this ride. And you're living out west now at this point. Yeah,
0: I quickly found a place to live very, very temporarily during that. My brother lived out there, so it was kind of crashing with him until we could find a spot. And um, I was getting married, so my actually is was my girlfriend at the time, and um, she got into UCSF's dental program for a pediatric dentistry. And so the
1: stars kind of aligned, and we ended up finding an apartment together. That's great. I can't imagine that stage and what happens during and after. You're standing up there pitching this idea, maybe it's going to have legs or not. And then you, you come out of there and you're, as you say, the Disney world of venture capital, right? You're, you're walking into these offices. You're probably um, balancing fears of I'm not good enough or they've heard this pitch 50 times already versus like this actually might be real and people are listening to me and I may actually be able to get some money to take this thing off the ground.
0: Yeah, I think of it as when I say kind of the Disney world of entrepreneurship, I think of it's more every entrepreneur who's out there who is smarter better funded, working harder than you are. And there's a hundred of them doing the exact same thing, the exact same idea, right? So when you wake up to that fact, it's like, what little competitive advantage can you create? And so the only competitive advantage I really had at that point was people were willing to meet me. And when you get out there, when you get in right with the right people, then doors seem to open And I'm not saying that I was really in, right, but I was kind of dancing around, (laughs) knocking on a lot of doors, and people were very gracious. I met guys like Ravi Mohan at Shasta Ventures. He is the founder of the firm. Tomas Tungas, who was at Redpoint Ventures, his door was always open. Even fellow entrepreneurs like Jonathan Swanson, the co-founder of Thumbtack, was always willing to sit down. Rick Marini, Jeff Ma. All these guys, super supportive, even Matt Kohler at Benchmark Capital, I think he helped me write the final deck that I presented at the TechCrunch 50 event. He's a Yale grad, right? And so maybe that was kind of the kinship that, you know, allowed him to help. But there's a lot of that out there, right? They're generally rooting for uh, success, even Mm -hmm. though it's like very cutthroat and competitive to get to the top.
1: Sure. I think that's what I enjoy so much about the founder community is uh, the willingness to support, right? Of course, business is cutthroat and it will be VC definitely. But the idea that there are so many people that are rooting for you to help and so willing to lend a hand to support, you know, those different ideas and taking those first couple steps to see if you can actually make it. Now, of course, it's a bit self-serving that if you take those couple steps, now they've got an inside track, Mm -hmm. right? But even so, I think that community is really, really strong and super helpful, right? That's really kind of the backbone of it. So Pete Carmanos kind of helps you get into the Hurricanes arena and you're in in minor league baseball and in other places?
0: So yeah, maybe I should describe the product right of CrowdZone. So CrowdZone was this idea that you didn't necessarily have to be friends with the people that were around you, but when you're in the same place at the same time, you probably have a common interest or have common needs. And where could this go? Kind of these uh, temporal, physical location social networks. And people thought, wow, okay." so we and we had some interesting examples, like when you get out of the Vegas airport, everybody is going to the exact same place, yet taking a different at the time taxi right now, Uber. But like how inefficient is that? Right. So what we found was the best crowd zones were really in sports stadiums. So people had the same parking, they had to order food, they had to get rides home. There are a lot of kind of commonalities there. They had the same amount of downtime when the game wasn't going on. And we thought, all right, let's 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 create a system where people can leverage each other and bring value to each other and, and the experience of being in the crowd. So Pete Carmanos owned uh, the Carolina Hurricanes at the time. His son, Jason, was the president. And yeah, they embraced it. They said, hey, come on in. And we were able to kind of set up CrowdZone as this, it was all mobile, and the hurricanes could market to, you know, people at home differently than those watching in a sports bar than watching in the stands. And so there was like cheering for the team, and you could kind of communicate and shout out about your team, but you could also order concessions. And that was the big component that the ERR from Excel had brought, his name's Murgesh Navar and fantastic entrepreneur, just cerebral, tactical, and of high emotional intelligence. This guy is unbelievable and had huge successes as an engineer and in management at other companies and has done extraordinarily well. So I was very fortunate to have this kind of talent behind me. And all I had to do is, you know, find the the Pete Carmanos of the world to get the first door open. And then, yeah, we were in minor league baseball stadiums and we're up on the scoreboards and people are downloading CrowdZone and cheering for their team and ordering food. It was really cool. The biggest challenge with the business was really infrastructure, right? Because there wasn't Wi-Fi at the time inside a lot of these stadiums. That's why baseball tended to work during summer, just because it was outdoors. But hockey was tough. I know we worked a little bit with the New England Patriots, trying to bring it to one set of boxes for like premium seating. And at the same time, I was trying to drive partnerships with big kind of sports brands, CBS Sports and ESPN. And we were going down this path with ESPN where they were going to eventually, the plan was to integrate it with the ESPN mobile app. And we weren't sure exactly where it was going to go, but we're at the senior VP level and we were kind of outlining what the long-term strategy would be. And that person, John Zare, who, you know, was, unbelievable took us in at ESPN. We're walking around in Bristol, Connecticut in in the headquarters and he's introducing to us to a lot of people. John had a car accident, right? And could not work again. And so he was really the champion. He was brought in to figure out mobile for ESPN at the time and we were going to be part of that solution. So we were thinking, okay, there's going to be a strategic partnership and potentially acquisition and, you know, really tough very tough situation for john and his family so it felt really bad at the time for him we ended up saying okay like we'll turn to cbs and it was cbs sports that was interested not at kind of the same degree but they saw real value in it for their 13 radio stations across the country where people could cheer whether they're in a stadium or not and they would see the real time kind of cheering what people are interested in and they could react live on the radio and so, um, you know, they asked to essentially buy that product. They said, what would you do if we were to do this? And we said, okay, let's call it CBS Shout Sports and we'll, you know, brand it for you and we'll build it out. So essentially they ended up um, buying, they bought CrowdZone um, and it was not, not another, you know, it was not a walk-off home run again. We're talking about another single um, return capital to Excel partners And, um, was like, wow, this was an incredible experience. That was another very close to being big with, um, with ESPN, but also, you know, the physical infrastructure in sports stadiums made this pretty tough to execute on when you were in a
1: stadium. I'm just struck with the timing of it because now you go to a stadium. Yeah. Five to 10 years ago, you know, we'd all be sitting in that indoor stadium, not being able to get a signal, right. Not being able to call home or get a text out now you go to virtually any stadium and wi-fi is either included or it's it's part of some premium package and the idea of like mobile ordering to your seat or pre-ordering to a specific location is just kind of a de facto must-have as a stadium just you know in some ways it's just infrastructure and timing right
0: yeah it's and it wasn't only wi-fi for us at the time there wasn't really well square was starting and paypal was moving in this direction but all the point of sale systems where somebody would take your credit card and put in the order were closed boxes by micros or ncr I can't remember the names and so when we integrated we had to bring physical equipment even receipt printers and connect into these black boxes there was no there were no apis to connect into so it wasn't just getting connectivity you know to to the internet it was connectivity into their point of sale systems and the microsis of the world had no incentive to open up um, to us. And, you know, that's why we have a new set of uh, payment solutions, physical and otherwise. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was an interesting idea. I, I don't think that physical infrastructure was the reason it, d- it didn't really take off. I think Twitter, frankly, was um, a, 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 an easier solution to implement. I remember we were with um, uh, the New York Jets, and that was the question that came up. Like, we really like this in engaging the crowd and presenting our own brand, but can't we just tweet and under our handle and have people follow that and tweet back? And I think that that yes, we we could bring, we thought we could bring more content and more experience to it, um, but it wasn't like a big enough difference. And ultimately, I think the Jets were in the middle of deciding do we partner with CrowdZone or Twitter? And it was for them an easy decision to go with Twitter.
1: Well still an amazing story, right? To add to the Rolodex of stories. So you sell to CBS Sports. Do you stay with the business?
0: No, CBS really went with it. They took it themselves. I think they ended up well, I know they ended up shutting it down at some point. My partner Murgesh he took some of the technology from that we developed in the point of sale system integration, and really built out something different. That um, you know, I think just far above my head. <laughs> and I'd said, you know what, I think I'm gonna, you know, find my next thing, right? And so, you know, hitting singles along the way, right? It's it's encouraging. It's I never saw entrepreneurship as stepping up, hitting the grand slam, and then never working again. I always saw it as a career path and something that I mm-hmm. love, This kind of idea, creation, product-market fit, unit economics, and then growth, something you know quite a bit about um, in, in real scale of a business. Um, so for me, I think it, w- it came back to Michigan again, right? So I got this invitation to be on a panel at Michigan, a big entrepreneurial event. Once a year, they do it. And Brad Keywell was the main speaker, the headliner. And so I reached out to Brad and I said, hey, we're both going to be there at the same time. I had met him when I was in school. School kind of really, Michigan really opened up that door. Um, I like to say, like, rolled out the blue carpet for me to meet everybody who's who. And uh, Brad Kewell's is one of those guys. And I said, hey, do you want to grab a coffee? And he said, sure. And, and I told him, look, I just sold this, this company, right? And um, I'm kind of thinking of my next move. What are you doing? And he's like, hey, I've got this company. We think there's something really behind it, but it needs somebody at the helm. Will you come and take the CEO role? We'll give you a bunch of equity. You tell us, you, you kind of redesign the business and tell us how much capital it needs and, and we'll run with it. And, you know, I thought about it for a while. I went over I met his partner, Eric Lakofsky, and said, all right, I'm going to do this. So the job is in New York. That's where the company is. And I'm living in San Francisco with my fiance at the time. But ultimately, the investors want this company to be headquartered back in Chicago. So I commute for seven months from San Francisco to New York, learning the business, creating the new plan. And I'm flying out on Sunday at 1 p.m. to land in New York that night and then flying back to San Francisco on Friday around four o'clock to spend the weekend with my fiance. And in the meantime, (laughs) In New York, we'd run out of points to stay at any reasonable hotel. So now I'm staying at the YMCA and we did that, or I did that for about six months and the room is no bigger than six by 10 and you share a bathroom with everyone on your floor. But it was, you got to do anything and everything to make it work. So eventually we came up with a plan. We got a little bit more money and that plan really required some serious technical expertise. And to that point, Betterfly was outsourcing their technical team. So I bought a company and the founder of that company became my co-founder. His name's Chris Peterson, fantastic guy and just brilliant product person and had a technical team that was, you know, second to none. This was going to allow us to build the product that we really needed to build in order to be successful. So Chris and I took that upon ourselves and we built the second version of BetterFly. And within nine months, we built this new system and we started seeing success. We started taking instructors and filling them up with classes. And you could see like acquiring the customer was X and we were going to make, you know, X times two if they had seven lessons and we were going to make this work. And um, along came an opportunity where a company called Take Lessons on the West Coast, they were doing all this kind of manually and locally. And they were looking for, hey, do we? is there a remote solution out there? And we seemed like a good fit. So, um, you know, I brokered that deal with um, the CEO, Stephen Cox, who has also been on our episode. And LightBank pretty much took that whole kind of m and experience over because they were going to invest and take lessons as well. And then ultimately, a couple of years later, take lessons sold to Microsoft So they did not need me at that point. It was really just the technology. And they had, you know, a much bigger team, much better financed. And, you know, Stephen took it to kind of the next level.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, we've heard his story, as you said, a a few weeks ago, quite an amazing one and and interesting how it all kind of collides. All these different stories kind of come together into a cohesive story. Okay, so BetterFly, and then you come full circle back to Spirit Shop.
0: Yeah, so I guess I knew that business was being sold, right? And there was going to be this outcome. And again, I'm going to be back on the street looking for my next thing. And I had just kind of randomly got this call from an organization was like, there wasn't a collegiate licensing group, but it was a competitor. And they wanted to bring licensing like we have in the college market, right? You can't just print a Michigan sweatshirt and sell it. You have to have a license to do that. There was nothing like that in high school. Right? And largely, high schools don't even control their brand very well. They're using pro teams brands a lot of times. And so there was this idea that, hey, let's really clean that up so high schools can take advantage of their brand and make money off of their brand. And they called me saying, hey, that spirit shop thing was big. You know, They thought it was a lot bigger than it was. And would you be the vendor that per- creates every product again for all of these schools under this license. And I was like, okay, that is an enormous competitive advantage. And so I called, uh, Dan Gilbert and I had met Dan Gilbert at, well, I was, well, we were at Michigan. He came to speak. And I think that room was 400 people. Everyone wanted to right. hear him and I'll divert a little bit in that Dan gave his speech. I don't remember what it was about, but I remember at the end he said, "I want three entrepreneurs to come running up on the stage or come up on the stage and pitch a business," <laughs> right? I say running because I was in the back because of this you're thing. running. I was sprinting <laughs> <laughs> to get to that stage, thinking that I was going to have to climb over our classmates. I didn't realize you were that there. fast. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, stumble my way up thinking like I'm diving for a goal line and nobody else came up. I was the only one. And Gilbert was like, come on, people, like you gotta, it's gotta be some other entrepreneurs out there. And, uh, and eventually a couple of people walked up and you had to pitch a business and people would clap and, you know, who would win. And it was unfair, right? Cause I've been doing this business plan sure. competitions, right? So I was, you know, proficient and against somebody who was thinking of an idea on the spot. There was like mm-hmm. no competition. So I win And he turns to me and says, gives me a signed LeBron James jersey.
1: Oh, my gosh. Right?
0: And he's like, and here's my business card, and you call me when you need me. And so, you know, I kept the card, and many years go by, and then I'm like, okay, Dan Gilbert's the one to call on this. And I call him, and I'm like, we can build the Fanatics, which is, you know, the big licensing and e-commerce company for pro sports, college sports. It's expanded into a lot of things, but at the time, it was... Relegated to that. And I said, We can build the fanatics of high school sports. We're going to get every consumer before they have an allegiance to college. This is going to be big. And he's like, Okay, I'll give you the money that you need. You got to move to Detroit. And I was like, Okay, you know, I want to be back in Michigan. Let's, you know, let's do this. So my wife and I, we've now moved from Silicon Valley to Chicago for a little while doing Betterfly. Even though Betterfly was in New York, I moved it to Chicago. Be there two years and then
1: moved back to Detroit and I think that was 2013. And then what does that run look like? You get Dan Gilbert on board? Yeah and Dan's
0: venture firm at the time or family office at the time I guess it was really a venture firm started by Josh Linkner frankly mm-hmm. who, we, who we've also had mm-hmm. on the podcast and I've mm-hmm. said many times right when you're raising money right there's money and then there is opportunity other benefits that come along with the people that are investing in you and and josh was just uh, an incredible advocate a a thinker somebody that could make me better and um so getting the money and the josh linkner on the board was um a a big benefit to me so we because i had done spirit shop before i kind of knew the things to to skip Um, I'd built some technology ahead of time before meeting out there. Um, and you know, I had a CTO in Chicago and it was really kind of, you know, temporary. And, um, but we built the business. We got everything up and running. We had all the licensing and it just went from kind of zero to something really, really quickly, which was great. So we were making money. And I would say two years in, the board came to us and said, Hey, look, you know, you guys are making money, we should explore if there is an opportunity to sell the business. And I think it's interesting, right? Who who you take money with, who you partner with, right? That is going to be someone and a group that has real influence over the decisions in in your business. So we said, all right, yep, this, the board says we got to take a look, let's take a look. And really quickly, we had two companies who were like, yep, we'll buy you, we'll buy you. And, and the board was really for, hey, let's create a liquidity event. Let's put some money in the till. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't 100% sure this was the right decision. But what I ended up doing is really saying, okay, how much more capital do we need to grow to that next level? And how much dilution does every investor that, you know, we've used to this point, really, Detroit Venture Partners, and Lightbank was an investor as well. What kind of dilution are are they going to take? What kind of dilution am I going to take? And what's the next hurdle? And so those are hard things to predict and model. But we decided, no, the numbers today are good enough. So we ended up selling the business in 2015. And so, you know, really good outcome for the people that were involved. And for me, I really thought, again, okay, you know, I'm out on the street again. What What is the next move? I've put some money in my pocket now hitting, let's call it four singles. Maybe, you know, there's a double in there. And so I've got some time to think about what is the next, the next thing. And I get a call from a light bank portfolio company and it's like, Hey, this one's going to struggle again. And light bank says, do you want to take the CEO role? And I'm like, no. Right. And I said that because At that point, I figured, I'm not a great operator, right? I'm just hitting these singles. And working with venture capital is not about hitting singles, right? It's not just about, hey, I got to live to the next day. It's about hitting grand slams. That is the model. And I really wasn't fitting that model. So I was like, I'm not going to take you to the promised land. You should sell the business. And they said, essentially, we don't know how, and and the owner doesn't know how to do that. And I said, well, then let me help. And so this was the first time now that, you know, I'm just going to go help a friend. I've got time. And I knew the CEO really well, Jaina Cook. And and I also knew, you know, like not only like I didn't think of myself as a great operator, but she's fantastic, right? She's been with two companies that have gone public at this point. And she is now, she's got a valuable company that's kind of teetering on success and they don't quite know what to do with it. Um, the investors don't really want to put more money into it. Jane is thinking about her own, you know, ROI, same situation. A lot of founders find themselves in. And I, and she said, like, can you help? So, um, it took about three and a half months, but I structured, uh, you know, a full buyout by a private equity group, um, Vista equity partners, and they bought the business and everybody's kind of looking around like, how did that happen? And the number was exciting, um, you know, Jaina thought she wasn't going to end up with anything. And she ended up very happy in that situation. And the light bulb started to go on. Maybe it was flickering, like, wait a second, I've sold my businesses. I've figured that out. I think maybe I can help my fellow founders. So I decided like, all right, I'm going to hang this shingle. And the word gets out that, that I've done this, whether it's through light bank and venture two other venture firms call and say, Hey, we got, a, we got a problem, we have a situation, can you help us? And I don't want to say the businesses are problems, right? It's just we need to evaluate whether MA and exit is the right thing. And so I started taking on these assignments, not being an investment banker, um, really not knowing too much what I was doing. It was one of those ideas like I know 3% more, so I'm the expert in the room. Well,
1: to be fair, you, you knew what you were doing. You're helping to align you know, and this is a theme of where we're at today, right? You're starting to align the experts to support that transaction, right? Yes. So I think, you know, you're not giving yourself enough credit going through, at this point now, four-plus creations and exits. You know many of the pitfalls and the successes and kind of what makes the difference between those two.
0: Yes, I am starting to learn that, and that's why I say the kind of the light bulb flickers. And so, you know, as you know, um, because you and I are – staying close and I'm asking for, you know, friendly advice along the way to lots of my friends and you're around and we're doing some golf trips. And so you're aware of, of what I'm thinking. And at this point I don't have a whole lot of confidence in what I'm going to do, but it's like, I was previously successful enough to have bought myself some time. Right. And that's really valuable as an entrepreneur.
1: And if I can interject as well, because you don't always give yourself the credit that you deserve, I think, for this journey. I think part of that superpower and kind of where you exist today is because you've spent so much of your life supporting and helping others, right? Without necessarily asking for, for things in return. But whether you planned on that or the real reason is it's your authentic place in this world is you've helped people now for over 20 years through all these different aspects of their personal life and their professional life. Quite honestly, I think it's part of the reason that I'm doing this with you, is that you authentically ask people how you can help before you expect anything in return. And I think that's amazing. And you should accept more of that credit than you take. But my point on that is that because you have done that for so long, your network is such that you can call on the Dan Gilberts of the world as needed because you have done so many things for so many people. And that enables you to Really spread your wings when an opportunity is in front of you to go tap the right people on the shoulder to support the best in various industries. Your experience, whether you've built or sold a business in that in that industry, and your ability to find those people or have already supported those people that they're gonna dive in to assist. So I think that makes you uniquely positioned more than most. And I know you wouldn't say that yourself, so I feel like I need to need to interject.
0: <laughs> well, I I appreciate you saying that. I think you know Josh Linkner in one of our walks around Detroit where he tried to get me out of the inner workings of the business and think more creatively and more broadly said to me, like, what do you think your superpower is? And I was like, I I don't know, right? And I had to go back and think about it. And I realized that it was my network, right? And I think I naturally built my network because I was never gonna be the absolute expert. There was always gonna be somebody better than I am at some given task. And why not surround myself with the best people that I can and you know go at it it's like a team right i was the goalie when i played i'm not going to score goals right you want to be with the best defenseman the best forwards in order to put the best team on the field and you do your part and you do it as well as you can so i really saw that as my superpower i would say that in in giving back the self-serving part of that is as an entrepreneur it's very hard to know am i being successful am i getting better on a day-to-day basis and when I talk to, you know, a young founder and I get to say, oh, my gosh, he can use that experience that I had that where I really messed it up to not have him mess it up or something that worked that I could share. And so that's incredibly rewarding. And part of being an entrepreneur for me is making sure that the next generation of entrepreneurs benefit from the experiences that we've had. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for saying that.
1: So you're now midstream at APG, the word's starting to get out, you're supporting ex-colleagues, friends, connections through this process, whether it's informally kind of supporting their thought process and pointing them in the right direction, or starting to formalize what that relationship or what that exit should be, or, or uh, contractually aligning the experts for the sale.
0: Yeah, let me step back. So, you know, after I sold Event Up for Jana, and I said, all right, there's something here, I grabbed this URL acquisition partners group, which you called APG. And, you know, it was 12 bucks. I had my youngest brother build our website in a day and a half. And what we ended up doing is attracting founders of businesses. And I thought, like, okay, I'm more of, like, a tech VC-backed. That was my world. But I get aerospace, you know, precision parts manufacturing, automotive prototyping, uh, uh, interior millworking, and then there's a lot of tech, right? Prop tech, health tech, fintech. HR tech, and all of these founders are coming to me. And what I'm realizing is, and, and, you know, uh, I'm the first thing out of my mouth is I have no idea what, <laughs> what your business or industry is about. But what I do know is there is somebody in the world that all is talking to your buyer today. It's somebody that is so immersed in your world, your business, your industry, they know your business and the value of it and how it will sell better than you do and certainly better than I do. Would you let me hunt and build that team of people, MA experts around you? And every founder would say, of course I will, because I would say, and it's free, yeah. right? So what was also happening at the time and, and COVID even advanced this was this idea that you don't have to go down the street and knock on the door of the local middle market investment bank it's not a local service to hire this is an expertise that you want an industry expertise and so we started bringing the best in the world to these entrepreneurs that never would have had that kind of exit and i I say yes my network of being able to reach out and communicate with people and people referring me in got me To these experts around the world much faster, I think, than somebody else would have been able to do it. But ultimately, I'm not the one doing the work. So, you know, on those first handful where I called it really more of an experiment, our experts, one guy crushed it from Los Angeles, sold a business in Michigan from LA. Another guy in London sold another business in Michigan from London, right? And his team was remote, a team in Greece and in Germany, We had another one in Portland where the company itself was the first company outside of Michigan, was actually in California and New York. And we're like, wow, now you can work with founders anywhere in the world and bring the best experts from anywhere around the world to create optimal outcomes because these experts know who's going to buy you. They know the structures that they want. They know the valuations that they pay. They know the inner workings of these buyers and put you at, at, at the advantage in that negotiation. And it worked, right? And I'm thinking like, I need help. I need to go from product market fit, which I've been really good at, and unit economics, getting that right, right? There's easily a way to make money. These investment bankers are making a very, very good living. And so being able to help them and, and taking a piece of that pie, that was kind of a no-brainer. I wasn't worried there. But it was like, how do you take this concept and help as many founders as you can, and I knew as a service, we could do this, I could do this on my own and make a nice living and help four or five people a year, or we can figure out how do we really scale this. And uh, fortunately, one of my buddies has built an amazing company and has found himself available, and I'm begging for you to join me, and you had run M&A, and you had figured out how to found a business, product market fit, unit economics and enormous scale and a big piece of what I've never been able to do. So very thankful to have you on this journey with me and you know how much fun we have and part of it is like we know how much of value we're bringing, like how excited we are to talk to these founders and give them something that they, they just never get. They're never going to find this without us.
1: It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Uh, I, I joke with my wife that you know, in my previous roles uh, building businesses, I had a hard time describing what it was that I did. Right. My kids would kind of stare at me blank faced and they'd know that I was on an airplane or, a, you know, in hotel rooms all the time. But I couldn't really accurately describe what my job was. And now I feel like I'm a bit on uh, Shark Tank, which is easier for them to kind of consume. of Just being able to speak to founders, you know, different animal, but speaking to founders about their businesses many of which are in industries that, yeah, we've we've never ourselves worked in, yet knowing the mathematical equation to get them to exit when they're ready. It's such a great mission, right? And it's so enjoyable to find them success when they get to the other side and oftentimes life-changing event, right, monetarily for themselves, their family, and and generations. And it's been a fun ride so far. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of commonality, right, in in all of the events, all the exits. And... It's new every time to every founder, for the most part. And so being able to like draw on those lessons, right, and share that knowledge kind of universally is making our fellow founders smarter about m and But then there's always something new that pops up, right? And as we collect that database of knowledge and experience and continue to share it, you know, our process gets better. Our experts are armed even more. Our founders are armed even more. It's really exciting to see where this is going to go.
1: Yeah, my athletic career was not nearly as prodigious as yours. I did not try out for the Olympics, uh, nor did I play a minor league sport. But we both kind of connect on that athletic experience growing up, right? And we talk a lot about building the dream team, right, and talking about how m and is a team sport and oftentimes, I've been through this, you certainly have been through it many, many times, as you get on a path of MA, if it's your first time, you really don't know who to talk to. You don't know where to go get the best information. You know, it's supposed to be this confidential process in which you don't want to present to the world that you're for sale, but you also want and feel like you need better information about that process. And when you put the right people in the room to support a founder, it aligns that idea of, of having a dream team around you, around the founder, to support what that process is going to be, and yeah, uh, I think, you know, every day we get a little bit better, but have seen, you know, such success with, with so many of the, the teams that we're working with.
0: You know, the, just hearing you say that, to me, this is not a foreign concept to great business owners and founders, right? When you're building your team to build your business, you're surrounding yourself with the best possible people, right, to grow that business to find success. And so it should be very, very logical that when you go to sell your business, nobody has really done that on your team. Yeah, you might have a CFO that has been through an Mm M&A process, and those employees are incredibly helpful during that process. But when you leave it to professionals who know a process, and then you leave it to industry experts who know the buyers and know how the buyers transact— it's like you said, we build the dream team around MA for these founders. And when the light bulb goes on and they see what happens, it's like, wow, this is a no-brainer.
1: Well, it has really been my pleasure to help you tell your story today. Every time I hear you uh, you go through kind of those experiences, I feel like I learned something new. So, you know, I hope that our listeners enjoy it as much as as I did today. Thank you. And um, we're excited for our next series of guests that we'll have over the next few weeks. Yep. And we'll talk to you next time. Sounds good. Thanks, Brian. All right, thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more
0: founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, exitwise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.